0: Good morning. It's good to be with you and uh, be up here. I'm not always up here, but it's good to be back up here. Someone said that would be a great res- wrestling name if it was Reverend Submission. Um, I thought that'd be funnier than that, but never mind. <laughs> if I do go into wrestling, that will become my my wrestling name. But um, it's a bit of an echo. Is that? Can we just? Is that a bit of an echo? Are you hearing that? Okay. Is that better? Thank you, Jar. Sorry. Thank you as well. Um, I am very aware that today uh, that it's, it's a quite a deep sermon, <laughs> so I hope that you will uh, not throw daggers at me, <laughs> but you will just hear it for what the Lord wants to say through me, uh, and uh, submission is something that I think we all struggle with in different areas of our lives, so um, I tackle some things towards the end of the sermon that I believe God's put on my heart for us to to tackle not just today but going forward as well as a church. So, if you've got your snorkelling gear, it's probably not quite deep enough. You might want some more, uh, more better equipment than that. But um, anyway, are we good? Are we good? Good. Right. So we're looking at this series. We're a second week in our series. Worship fit for a king. Adam did an amazing job last week at giving us an overview of 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 16 verses 7 through to 30. Six. Uh, If you missed it, please check out our YouTube channel. It was brilliant. He gave us the context that we need I'm not going to go through the full context again today So if you want to know what that is check out his talk from last week Also all those worship playlists videos as we're beginning to grow that are on our YouTube channel as well So if you want to hear other people's hearts towards worship what it is to them then check it out on there Um, But in short this passage is all about David restoring the worship He is king and he's got the Ark of the Covenant. And if those who don't know, that's basically signifying the, the presence of God. And David's got the Ark of the Covenant, he set up a tabernacle, and he's reestablishing worship. And uh, what I found out this week is that this worship now in the tabernacle is very different to the worship that was under Moses. So in Moses' time, the worship then was very much about burnt offerings and sacrifices and tithing and, and everything else much more solemn kind of approach but now with David what he's establishing is something a little bit different he's stretching God's people he's moving them forwards you actually see words like singing and dancing in the tabernacle you see the instruments being introduced into the tabernacle for the first time so don't blame me right blame David it's in the bible (laughs) okay you see all this kind of joy and this life come into the tabernacle you kind of see this real close relationship as we know if you know your bibles david was a man after god's own heart and you see this represented in the worship and just as david was stretching god's people then this is our hope is it not adam and Ship team for this series that it will stretch our worship it will not just engage us, but actually it might push us beyond what we're used to, to a, pl- a place where we can give honouring worship to God, which is what we looked at last week, that we can come before God because of Jesus Christ, and he deserves our highest praise, and he deserves our highest honour, and we've just been doing that, and the front front worship set, thank you, worship team, that was amazing. But also, when we come into times of worship, we come engaged fully with God and who he is in his entirety. I say that because I think often, whenever, well, certainly for me, whenever I start worshipping God, I tend to focus on one or two key attributes of who God is. Does anyone else do that? God is great, God is love, God is powerful, faithful, healer, sovereign. I do like interaction, occasionally this is a bit weird, by the way. He's way maker, he's healer, he's our father, is he not? I need to put that down just there for the time being. He's all these things that we come into the presence of God. Sometimes we don't even realise what we're doing until about half an hour through to the service. But he's all these things at 10 o'clock. He's actually all these things at 1 minute to 10 as well and 2 minutes to 10 and way before that and what we do outside of our lives. But often when we come to church, we suddenly become aware of that. And this is what our hope is for this series. That what are we walking into? The presence of a king and all that that carries and all that that could mean for us. But how many of us do we come to church with... Uh, A feeling of fear and I don't mean scared but a feeling of fear in the presence of God. Does that lead you in your times of worship? So often we want to have this picture of God who's all loving and he knows all things but what about coming before God with fear? I think it's a really really important healthy tension to hold that we come into the presence of God in a much more tangible way when it comes to church and actually holding fear Looking at God with fear is a really important thing because then actually we get to see ourselves in reflection of that. Why should we come before God with this healthy tension of fear? I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. But if you've got your Bibles with you, or we've got your apps, whatever you like to use, have we got it up on the screen as well? Oh, look at this! The tech team are awesome. Right, applause for our tech team. I would suggest, though, getting used to reading your own Bibles if you can. that would be good. Uh, Right, so verses 25 through to uh, 31 says this. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendour and majesty are before him strength and joy in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So amongst this new blueprint that is being set up for worship, you see these words fear and tremble. Does that mean that we should be constantly looking over our shoulders or that God's going to smite us or he wants to tell us off or shout us that we should cower in a corner? Does it mean that? No. Does it mean that the peace and the proximity that Jesus achieved for us on the cross, right? Does that mean that that's gone? No, not at all. Absolutely not. I was trying to think of an analogy that might help, and I appreciate that analogies fall down at different points, but I was at a youth retreat a couple of weeks ago helping a team. They did an amazing job, by the way, guys. We'll have a little video of what you did next week, so it'd be great to see what you got up to. Um, I was was at the youth retreat, and I said to one of the leaders, I've never got detention at senior school, right? Can you believe it? I never got detention at senior school. And uh, they were like, as if. And I haven't, honestly. But I did get close to it. Well, I thought I'd got close, but I hadn't. It turned out I didn't. In year eight, one day the head teacher said to me, James, because that's my name, uh, James, I want to talk to you tomorrow in my office. So I started freaking out. I was, anyone else have that conversation with the head teacher? There's a few coy hands that have gone out right now. Um, yeah, I was freaking out. I was thinking, oh, do you know what? It's because I said I didn't like my history teacher, Miss Baskerville. She's probably lovely now, but I didn't like her at school. Miss Baskerville, what a strong name that is. Anyway. Um, or oh, it's probably because I stole a biro from my science teacher, I didn't give it back. It's probably because in year seven, I took a day off school ill to play Nintendo basically all day. And I was thinking, what is it he wants to talk to me about? Anyway, the next day came and I went into his office, I sat down, and he said, James. It's like, yeah, sort of sweating, knees knocking. He said, I've heard some in- interesting things about you. I was like, oh no, what is it? What have I done? So I heard that you came first in a regional trumpet competition. And I had done, which is amazing. And he then praised me the following week at an assembly, which I couldn't believe. But my point of that is, not just to show off that I can play trumpet, by the way, but, um, <laughs> but I won't play trumpet, not anymore. Uh, but that was it's his school. okay? It's his domain. It's his place of authority. It's his place of power. He could have punished me if he'd found out about the pen, <laughs> or, or he could have praised me, which is what he did. He knew all about me in that moment. And when I went into his office, I had this healthy sense of fear. Are you with me? Healthy sense of fear. The Bible translates that as actually reverence, reverence, respect, a deep admiration for who the person is opposite you, who the person is we're in the presence of. The Bible knows this too well. I think we've lost this in our times of worship. Psalm 114.7 says this, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. Psalm 119.20, my flesh trembles for fear of you. Proverbs 9.10 says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I love Bible quiz, it's good. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Deep respect for the Lord. Understanding who he is in his entirety makes us wise because we realise who he is. Isaiah 62 verse 2 says this, this is the one to whom I look, this is to whom God looks. You know this, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and what, at my word, trembles at my word. My belief belief is in our times of worship, when we come into this place, we don't have to come in cowering, we come in through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, which is amazing, and God is all loving, but he also has all authority and has all power. All authority and power, this is stuff that we know, but what we're trying to do in this culture is trying to create space where we can know it. (laughs) We, we give God reverent submission, respect to say come and move in all authority, in all power. Not just that we know you can, and sometimes that might happen by proxy or occasionally when I stumble across your power, I stumble across your power, but actually I come and I submit my life to you. It's like an exam paper when you submit the exam paper and I submit my life to you. A worship, as Arthur said, is a great space where you're reminded of his awesomeness, his power and authority Do we come to church with a posture of reverence and respect? I wrote this the other day. It sounded clever at the time, or maybe it is, I don't know. A posture of reverence and respect are crucial in our gathered worship times because it acknowledges God as not only being all-powerful and having all-authority, but that he wants to move in power and authority as we worship him. This is why we're creating more space after, after the sermon, by the way. It's not just so that we can have some more songs and feel nice. It's because we believe the word and the spirit in that space is a really significant moment for us. Because it's so easy to rush off and say hello to someone you don't, you don't know that well. Or say hello to old friends in the church. Or go and have a cup of tea or coffee. We want you to do that. Don't get me wrong. But as soon as we start doing that, the next thing happens. The next thing happens. Monday comes around. Tuesday comes around. We believe God wants to do business with us in the room. In the north and traditional and in the south and the contemporary. That's why we're opening up things like Breathe as well. Breathe is next week, in case you don't know. Shameless plug. <laughs> this is growing. This is an, it's, it's an incredible space for, to allow God to be God. In the fullness of who he is. With all authority and power to speak into our lives. Next week, half past six, come along. It'll be good to see you. A bit of food first and then some worship afterwards. But our times of encounter with God in our worship require us to come in with the mindset of I'm going to submit myself as I worship him this morning. Because it is, isn't it? It's easy to sing the songs of I will surrender all. I'll surrender all. I will offer up my life. These are all bangers, by the way. You can have it all, Lord. He is above all things in our life. It's easy to to, to sing those songs. Verse 31 in the passage, to say the Lord reigns. But is it so easy to actually allow him to reign? In our lives, to submit to Him. You know, God wants authority and influence that goes beyond just our words on a Sunday. Just our words. Are you with me, church? It's not such a fun one today. <laughs> this is why worship that is fit for the King doesn't just require a posture of reverent submission in the room, it requires it to flow out of this space into our lives. You notice in the passage, in verses 25 and 26, it talks about gods. It said, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. The kind of authority and power that God wants to speak into, I believe, particularly in our day and age, is the gods of our nations. The gods that even as Christians we struggle with. He wants to be respected and revered above all gods. King James puts it this way, for all the gods of the people are idols. You don't have to know your Bible too well to know that God's people constantly were getting pulled left and right, weren't they? Worshipping God one minute and then worshipping a, a mounded down piece of gold in the shape of a calf the next. two Kings seventeen thirty three says this they, God's people, worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. The customs of the nations of which they had been brought. as Bible speak for the influence of the society around them. Have we forgotten that we have a jealous God? There's that song we sing, he is jealous for me. We don't always think about that, do we, with God. Exodus 34, do not worship any other gods for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. He's jealous for you. He's jealous for you. In the New Testament, in Colossians 3, 5, Paul says this, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to earthly nature. These are the gods, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Many of the New Testament warnings are about not being seduced into a place of lifting up other gods above our God. Why do we do it? Why do we have these gods in our lives? Even if we don't necessarily at this point know if we have them. I think the answer is in verse 27. Splendour and majesty are before him. Strength and joy in his dwelling place. What we do with these other gods in our lives is we look for strength and joy in their dwelling places. We look to people around us. We look to choices that we make. The things that we have in our life and we look for strength and joy in that. And actually, the Bible says we should find strength and joy in the sufficiency of who Christ is. Because that's where the real freedom is. That's where we find real strength and joy that won't ever let us down. So that when we sing songs like, Christ is enough for me, he is enough for me. (laughs) I want to be clear. Some of the things I want to talk about now are good things. They aren't bad things in and of themselves, but... Sometimes they take pride of place in our life to the point that they become gods and we actually elevate them above our gods. These are just examples and I'm trusting that the spirit might drop in other things as you're listening. So the first one, the gods of the people. And I speak in a mirror, by the way, I've said this before, and I don't say this just for humble, false humility. I always speak in a mirror when I'm preaching, okay? Okay. I I wish the platform wasn't here (laughs) and I was just on the same level because I I learn this, I'm learning this as well so please always know that the first one is the God of identity I believe God wants to speak into our lives and I think worship is often the best place for him to have our full focus, attention but I believe that we have largely abandoned who we are in Christ and placed our identity in things or what we do If someone was to ask you about your identity or ask you what makes you you, what would your response be? Probably and understandably it would be your job, your career, your position, your ex-career, that you go to church, that you serve at church, your achievements or maybe your lack of, your social media standing, your hobbies, your abilities, your skills, your qualifications, your sexuality, your pain, your brokenness, your previous mistakes, your failures, Your relationship status, whatever that looks like. The reality is our identities or where we place our identity can become a God, an idol. Because we look at what we do, what we don't do, what we have done, what we haven't done, what's happened to us, what hasn't happened to us. And before long, our story about our identity becomes our main focus. And if that becomes our main focus, then that will let you down. Your career will let you down people in your life will let you down you're not known by your pain and your brokenness you're not known by your sexuality you're not known by your hobbies or your skills or your qualifications you're known because of who Jesus is so the Bible says there is no longer Jew Gentile free slave yeah you know the other ones male female <laughs> I could keep going on the list so I'll make it up there's no longer that because we're all one in Christ The hard work that Jesus put in on the cross for you and I to have a brand new identity that he achieved for us, we continue to corrupt because we place our identity in so many of the other things. This is who I am. This is what I have done. This is my achievements. This is just the way that I was made. No, sorry. You are a child of God. You've been given a new identity. And we need to learn that we'll find joy and strength only in Christ when we learn to put on our identity in Christ. That we are children of God, that we're heirs, that we're seated in heavenly places. Have we made an idol, unbeknownst to ourselves, to to an identity that doesn't belong to us, it belongs to the world? Materialism and money. I think in the culture of pursuit of money and the acquisition of things is, is a guiding force for many people. It's an idol. You don't have to have lots of things or lots of money by the way to pursue it or for it to be on your mind all the time. Abby and I were watching TV the other day and the National Lottery advert came up with um, set for life, £10,000 a month for the rest of your life. We both sat there and we thought, that'd be nice. That'd be nice. You know. Anyone else ever thought that? It's subtle, isn't it? It's subtle. If I had a bit more money, if I had a bit more stuff, if I had just a little bit more, then I could do this, then I could be more generous with it. I've, I've, I've done that. God's like, if you're going to be generous, you're generous with what you've got now. <laughs> We've all fallen for, that, for, for the fact that we have a God of money or materialism. We have hope in our money. We have hope in our material things. Life will be okay when this happens. But if you replace money and materialism with God, God should bring us hope. God should bring us what we need if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness this is what it looks like to be a child of God you know some of the greatest moments that I've grown in my faith has been directly linked to I'll be honest with you lack of money in my life God's done some incredible things often through incredible people but often sometimes just miracles that I did not expect I'm sure Kat we sat here can also testify to this testimony I'm sure many of us can and we don't do this to get money, that's not what I'm saying, but often we can build a God out of money and material things. We strive for it. We look for it. I mean, at the moment, the economy is all over the place, isn't it? You know, that isn't the same as yesterday. Um, it might not be the same forever, but we know that God is. We know that we can put our trust in him. Next one is appearance. Appearance. You don't have to look very far on TV and social media to see an advertisement that promises to fix you in some way. The amount of shampoos I've nearly bought for the back of my head. I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Just going to shave it off. To make us look better, younger, fitter, stronger. In fact, you can even look like your favourite celebrity now. So there we go. You can all get your skinhead like Adam, which would be fantastic. So why are these so common? Because they work. Because they work. You know, some of us worship our physical appearance. And again, that's whether we actually like it or not. Some of us, most of us probably don't even like half of what we look like. We wish we had more air at the back. Longer legs, shorter legs, whatever it is. But there's a subtle thing called appearance that becomes a god to us. We spend hours worrying about what we look like. What others might think about us. Spend hours in front of the mirror applying makeup. I'm not saying makeup is wrong. You spend hours at the gym again working out. It's fine, but these things, if they're left unchecked, become so much about our security. So much. You know, it's right to take pride in your appearance. You know, we also know that we, we, our bodies as a temple of the spirit. We know 1 Timothy it talks about, you know, for physical training is of some benefit, but it goes on to say, but godliness has benefit above all things for now and the future. As well, are we more concerned about our godliness than our appearance? If certain things were taken away from you—your clothes, your favorite clothes, your makeup, not being out of the gym, whatever it is—all things that related to your appearance that made you feel like insecure and naked—where would you be? Where would you be? Is God still God, or do you need all these things to bring you strength and joy? Are you with me, church? Okay, I've not been thrown a tomato yet, which is great. <laughs> uh, entertainment and comfort is the next one. I love entertainment. I've got Netflix. Uh, I've got, what else have I got? Amazon Prime Video, we've got all that stuff. Fictional books, whether it's football, whether it's sports, whether it's fishing, whether it's, whether it's the allotment. Whether it's your favourite meals out, your gigs, whatever it is, we love to be entertained and God definitely wants us to enjoy elements of this stuff. Please don't get me wrong, I'm not here to be a killjoy. Okay? But often we can become so distracted by it, we need it. We don't even know that we need it, we need to have it as much as we can. We're constantly doing the next things to entertain us, entertain us, entertain us. And often that just relates to our comfort, which is the next thing. I think the two things come together. They do, great. Comfort. I think we live at a time now where our comfort is paramount above all things. We have jobs that used to take hours that now take minutes. Even going to like Waitrose or another shop, wherever you shop. Like the automated cashier machines, like seconds, isn't it? It's good. Some of this stuff is good. It's for our comfort. It's for our efficiency. But I think somewhere subconsciously, like we've kind of got used to pursuing comfort in our lives. And yet, discomfort is often the call of the kingdom. Discomfort is often the mechanism in which God stretches us, stretches our faith. Jesus says, in this world we will have trouble, but but take heart, I have overcome this world. He says that because he's expecting us to have trouble. But it's okay, because we've got him. I think this hits home most significantly when it comes to sharing Jesus with others. We can be so concerned about what others think about us, so concerned about that you don't, we're not judging you, you know, we love you, we don't, we don't want hurt, to hurt, hurt you or upset you in any way, that what we actually do is we elevate comfort above the calling. What we're doing is actually elevating our comfort above what God's calling us to be in Christ, is that we're on a mission. Jesus promises his followers that we will face trials, persecutions, difficulty for his namesake, and I, I ask my question this every week, right? When I go to Obi's football, Obi's my son, his football training, and I'm stood by the dads, it'd be so easy to say nothing, right? It'd be so easy to say nothing to them. Just talk about normal stuff, friendships, relationships, that kind of thing. But every time the Lord's like, mm-mm, <laughs> nope, nope. Yeah, they might not like you afterwards. They might not talk to you. But is this about you or is this about me? When was the last time that you faced difficulties for Jesus' name? It's an easy one. This next one: sex and relationships. This one, for lots of people, sex and/or being in a relationship are idolised more than anything else. I think we see that in our society, almost to the point that I think we have an entitlement towards it. Do you know what I mean? We should be having sex, you should be in a relationship. And if you're not, then something's wrong, you're wrong, you're broken, you're not a full person until you've got someone next to you. You're strange if you're not having sex. It's no surprise that we can feel like this because people's relationship status sexuality, sexual activity is everywhere in our culture. Everywhere in our culture. I sound like an old man, I know. <laughs> But from adverts and plot lines on TV to over-sexualisation of most social media platforms. It's, it's, it's gross. It's gross. It's because it's a god. We are force-fed this narrative that we are missing out if we aren't sexually active or being able to put ourselves out there or in a relationship. Society has created an idol out of sex and relationships. One that is, I believe, is, is in reverse to what God intended in the first place. And sadly, like most things, it affects us all, right? I'm not saying this as an perfect Christian. I'm not saying this at all. But it's in the church because we are the church and we are people and we're fallible. And we make mistakes and we struggle with things. I'm not saying that because there's judgment, by the way. Oscar Wilde says, celibacy is the only known sexual perversion. In the first century Rabbi Eliezer said any man who has no wife is no proper man. That's just a reflection even back then of the pressure of societal norms and I know this next bit might be difficult particularly given that I'm married but have you ever stopped and asked God what he thinks about your relationships or your sex life? Unlike the world the New Testament is astonishingly positive about singleness for example 1 Corinthians seven seven calls it a gift. If you're single in the room, you might not feel like it's a gift. I understand absolutely, to a certain extent, how you would feel. And I know I walk with people that, that find it very difficult and have had to do a lot of hard work. Matthew 19.11 says that there are some who have been given the ability not to get married. How do you think that feels in a society that that pushes it, relationships, 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 particularly in the church where it is about being married to pursue that relationship. Has your understandably strong urge to be in a relationship or if you are in one, to be in a different one, led you to obsess over it and to feel complete without it, to be bitter about people that are in relationships or jealous towards them? Has it led to you making mistake after mistake after mistake, as you pursue something that the world elevates above God. And I will just put this in as an aside. As a church, and I'm learning this because I've done this wrong in the past, we need to stop marrying people off. (laughs) Do you know what I mean by that? Because it just puts pressure on people. And biblically speaking, that might not be their thing. you with me? Right. Back to sex. As the world has done, this church, you and I, we can take the gift of sex created and given to us by God, designed for the commitment and safety of marriage, and we can flip it around. We can do a try-before-you-buy approach. And before long, our sexual identity, our sexual practices are sacred to us. And to even question those sexual ethics brings defensiveness, justifications, and possibly outrage from some. And all that does for me is show how tied we are to our idol of sex, to the God of sex. Because the rest of the world's doing it, so it's absolutely fine. And how dare you or anyone else say anything different? But what would it look like for the church, you and I, to be carriers of God's intended design for sex and sexual activity? To recapture the blueprint of sex and relationship given to us in the Bible? To be prepared to submit our sex lives And everything, by the way, that I mean by sex is everything. And let's be honest, right? I've done this talk before. You know my history with pornography. For blokes and some women, pornography is wrapped up in this as well. To submit our sex lives over to God and say, your ways are better than my ways. As difficult as that is, as hard as that is to read in the Bible, your ways are above my ways. And I submit my ways to you. I will say again, church hasn't helped with things like shame and guiltiness piling upon people, leaving people in the dark. I don't think the church speaks enough on this stuff personally. We've left people in the dark over different things. We've left people feeling judged and isolated and alone as if church cannot be the space they can come and ask their questions and chat to people. It needs to be. It needs to be needs to be loving, but we need to have an understanding of what the Bible says and stuff. The last God is the God of subjectivism, which probably underpins all the other gods. One way to understand subjectivism is this. If I approve of something, it must be good. In other words, each person has their own set of principles. Often, these values and principles are based on just how you feel, your experiences, the world around you, what you've seen. There are no moral absolutes, there's no objective truth. No one can tell me what to do, especially not God. Sadly, this is true for you and me. We've all got this intrinsic kind of want to want to rebel against God in certain ways. I still do. That's why some of the stuff today, by the way, has probably annoyed some of you or grated you. I don't know. We'd sooner elevate our subjective truth above God's objective truth. The Bible says in Judges twenty-one, twenty-five. in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The God of subjectivism is really the God of self. Everyone does what's right in our own eyes based on what we feel, what we think, what everyone else around us is doing. What we're doing is simply serving our ideals and our own desires above God's. Sadly, unlike then when they didn't have a king we have a king we have a king who is the way, the truth and the life we have a king who is the spirit of truth who leads us into all truth if we are prepared to listen to him and obey him at what can be very very difficult cost, I appreciate that I appreciate that my cross is not as heavy as other people's crosses I would say to finish Romans 12 says this Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In verse 29, it says this. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Bring an offering, come before him. So in view of God's mercy, what do we offer? Our all. We offer our bodies. We offer our lives. This is what it means to come into times of worship before a king as we reverently submit before him and say, I offer you my all. I offer your objective truth above my subjective truth. As hard as that might be, our lives will bring worship to God just as loudly as our voices do. That's my hope. Our lives should bring worship to God just as loudly as our voices do. Worship is a great space, as Arthur said, to be Reminded that He is God, and who are we? Who are we to tell God what we want to do with our lives when He has paid it for it at such a high price? So, what is it that we need to deal with today? Are there any modern day idols in our lives that He is asking you to offer to Him? I've got a set of questions that I'd like you to see, five things to think about. I think these are things that possibly can um, help us think about other idols or other gods in our lives. It might be nothing that I said today, which is fine. What's always on your mind? Where do I get my joy and strength? Where do I spend my time? Do I really trust God's ways over my own? If I had to choose between God and my idol, who would I choose? Or even who would win? And I want us to spend just a couple of minutes thinking about that. Um, yeah and then we're going to have a time of communion and uh, the good thing about communion is we're reminded of what Jesus Christ did on the cross through his death and resurrection we're reminded that we can come to God confidently not cowering these are not things by the way that God doesn't already know and yet he still went to the cross anyway he still calls you his beloved he still delights in you he still cares for you he still wants the best for you but he also wants you to deal with stuff he wants you to have a healthy fear of who he is above all these other gods in your life and so the best thing about communion is we're reminded of what he's done for us communion actually for me is a celebration that we're free of that stuff we're free of the consequences of sin in our life we're not might not be free of some of the sins and some of the things we struggle with but we're free of the consequences of it because of Jesus Christ. I think the disciples, when they found that Jesus had resurrected, when they did their meal time, it was like that was a joyful moment rather than a solemn moment. He's back to life. This is why we remember him, because he's back, he's alive, he's changing lives. It's a celebration. So when we come into our time of celebration of communion in a minute, let's come before him thinking about this first. The the communion cup's both in the north building and Mike's going to lead it in here and Emily's going to lead our time of communion in here. This is going to be part of our response, by the way. As we come up and we pick up a little, what are they, shots? (laughs) Plastic things. (laughs) Imagine imagine putting down whatever it is that God's put on your heart. I I lay this with you. You might have laid it with him yesterday and the day before and last week and 40 years ago, by the way. that's That's the beauty of who God is. He's with you all times. He wants to have all authority and all power into these situations to transform us to become more like him.